0: Well, it's great to be at church with you today. My name's Rick. If I haven't met you before, uh, hopefully I get to meet you later. I'm a student minister uh, here at All Saints. Now, growing up, my dad was a carpet cleaner. And the whole time from my earliest memories uh, until now, my dad has cleaned carpets. And someone told me when I was a little kid that farmers, often when they grew older, their sons would grow up ...and do exactly what their father did. And so I had this fear. <laughs> I had a fear that my life was planned out for me... ...and I was going to be a carpet cleaner. I thought, that's exactly where I have to go. So I, that drove me. So I studied hard. I was, that's not going to be me. Went to uni. Ended up starting a graphic design and marketing business in 2012... And then uh, a number of years ago, in 2015, I started uh, doing a trainee shit with my church, and now I'm studying at Bible college uh, to work for a church. And I thought, I did it. I escaped. And then I thought, a little while ago, I was thinking about my dad and thought, wait, actually, dad, before he did carpet cleaning, he was in marketing. And then he's now moved to New Zealand, and he's studied at Bible college. And he preaches at his church, and he's an elder there. I was like, okay, that's just a coincidence. And then I thought about his dad. And he was in marketing and worked for his church. And then I realized his dad, marketing, worked for his church. So in trying to avoid my family line, somehow I've walked straight onto what apparently is the family path, marketing, working for a church. History repeated itself. Now, last week we saw Adam and Eve, the first people, God had given them a beautiful relationship with himself and overflowing out of that, he'd given them this incredible place to live. But beyond that, they decided, even though God's given us this, we are going to reject him, ignore him. They listened to the snake, to the serpent, and they chose death. But in the midst of God judging them, we saw last week, Adam and Eve, God gave them hope in a promise. In chapter 3, verse 15, he gave them hope that one of their children would crush the snake, Satan. And so, as we begin chapter 4, I take it, we're supposed to read it with this in mind. Will there be a child who will crush Satan, or will history repeat itself? Will there be a child who walks in the footsteps of their parents? So, let's dive in. Have a look at verse 1. Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to their first son, and she named him Cain. And then, verse 2, a brother is born, Abel. So, this is looking pretty good so far. Perhaps history doesn't need to repeat itself. We've got not just one, but two contenders for someone who might destroy Satan, Cain and Abel. They're both pretty promising. They're both hard workers. Look at the second half of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil, a shepherd and a gardener, both demonstrating the good rule that God ordered Adam and Eve to have over creation. Things get better. They both bring an offering to the Lord, verses 3 and 4, an offering, a way of honouring God and who He is. And they each get their offering from where they work. So have a look again, verse 3. In the course of time... Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you're in a midweek Bible study with us uh, during the week or you've read this passage before, you might have the same question that I had when reading this. Why? Why did they decide to bring offerings? But this chapter, it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us did God prompt them? Did Adam and Eve tell them to do it? Did they decide to do it together? Did they decide to do it independently? This is one of those times where the Bible doesn't answer the question that we're hoping it's going to answer. Now, sometimes it does that because the ans- the question that we're wanting answered is the wrong question. Sometimes it's because the Bible is going to make us wait for the answer. Here... What we do know is that God doesn't treat the offerings the same way. We don't know why yet they've brought them, but we do know that God treats the offerings differently. There's something different. Verse 4 says that God looked favourably on Abel's offering, but he didn't look favourably on Cain's. Now, again, this chapter doesn't seem to emphasise why God responds differently to the offerings. He doesn't do it just to slam vegetarianism. Meat good, veggies bad. That's not why he's doing it. But along that line, some have suggested that God, because he later, if you read through the Bible, commands that people bring offerings of meat, maybe Abel's just preempting that. Maybe that's why it's good. But we also know that later on, God asks for grain offerings. God asks for offerings not just from meat, but from that which has been grown from the ground. And because we don't see, as we said, that God commanded this offering, there's no prescription for how God has wanted it, and Abel's listened, Cain hasn't. One hint that we might get is in verse 3, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, but verse 4, Abel brought fat portions, the best bits, from some of the firstborn of his flock. In other words, Cain brought a selection, but Abel brought the best of the best. That might be what's going on. But again, the emphasis here doesn't seem to be on why Abel's offering was better. Because if it was, you would expect that perhaps God would ask Cain, fix up your offering. Do what your brother did. Bring meat next time. There's nothing like that. No, the next thing we see is Cain's reaction to coming out second best. Verse 5, so he was very angry and his face was downcast. That's exactly how siblings react, don't they, when one comes out on top. Sibling rivalry. Now, I grew up without any brothers or sisters, and so I was your very stereotypical snobby only child who thought I was uh, going along with all the grown-ups thinking, isn't this so childish? Oh, siblings. But I see it already in our two daughters. My wife Ellen and I, we have two daughters, three, eight months. And our youngest eight months, she's starting to get into that phase where she's wanting to play a little bit more. And so as I'm playing with her, I can see Annabelle in the corner, looking, annoyed. Sometimes she's more overt about it. But most of the time, what will happen is, Lucy will kick away, or will throw away the ball. I'll turn around to get it. And by the time I've turned back, Lucy is on the ground crying. Annabelle has her toy, but apparently has no idea how that happened. <laughs> Sibling rivalry. Here, God sees that Cain is angry. And so he confronts him about it. Verses 6 and 7, he says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God challenges Cain's reaction. Because even though God at this stage has looked favourably on Abel's offering, that doesn't mean he's completely rejected Cain. And so God gives Cain two options. Verse seven, on the one hand, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But on the other hand, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, if you're new to church and new to these things, that word sin might be a word that you've heard, but don't really understand what it means. Basically, sin is anything that we do, which ignores God, ignores those around us and loves ourselves instead of them. That's what God is warning Cain against here. Cain's parents, Adam and Eve, they chose poorly. They didn't choose what was right. They ignored God's words. And so God's warning to Cain, sounds like he's describing almost the snake from chapter three. He's crouching at your door, except besides snakes don't crouch, but it's crouching at your door, waiting for him, wanting to own him, bring him down. But God tells Cain, you must rule over it. Don't let sin rule like it did with your parents. We've seen how that goes. You need to rule it. So we come again to our question. Is Cain going to be the snake crusher or is history going to repeat itself? Let's look again. Verse 8, Cain gets organised. He plans it out. This isn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. He says to his brother, let's go out into the field. And while they're there, Cain attacks his brother and he kills him. In one go, Any hope that this generation would crush Satan is gone. History has repeated itself. Now, in two generations, Adam, Eve and Cain have modelled the two biggest problems which have plagued humanity ever since. We love ourselves more than God. We love ourselves more than our neighbour. They've broken what Jesus would eventually call the two greatest commands... Love the Lord your God, love your neighbour. And history keeps repeating itself. Not only is the temptation similar, but God's reaction in both situations is similar. Just like with Adam and Eve, God begins by asking Cain a question. If you're familiar, if you were here with us, what God would do with Adam and Eve was he started by asking them a question. He does that here with Cain as well. And not just any question, a pointed question. Seeing if Cain will confront what he's done, repent and turn from it. But just like Adam and Eve, Cain doesn't grieve what he's done. In fact, Cain ramps it up. He lies and then he snaps back at God. Look at verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? But God knows exactly what Cain has done. He didn't ask this question because he didn't. He was giving Cain an opportunity. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain tried to trick God, but of course he can't. God knows us. God knows all of us. He knew Cain, he knew what he'd done, he knew Abel, and he knew that his blood had been spilled. And notice that when God is highlighting Cain's sin, he doesn't just call Abel by name, he calls him your brother. Cain not only killed, he killed his own brother. Rejecting God's good word needs to come with consequences. Adam and Eve, they face the consequences for their sin. And those have impacted each of us. They've affected the world that we live in. Cain, Cain faced the consequences, the curses for his sin as well. Verses 11 and 12, we saw God pushed Cain out of where he'd lived to become a wanderer. He won't be able to successfully work the soil anymore. What he'd worked to present an offering to God, and that soil which had taken the blood of his brother, now isn't going to be a place where he can get his food. And Cain knows that being pushed out means that in some way he'll leave God's presence. Did you notice that? Cain is aware that becoming a wanderer means that he'll leave God's presence and now he'll be killed. As he wanders around, someone will kill him. He says, it's more than I can handle. But God shows Cain mercy. He doesn't need to, but he protects Cain. Look at the second half of verse 15. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Even though Cain is cursed, God pronounces judgment on anyone who kills him. God shows kindness where he doesn't need to. Now, we might have hoped for a fresh start from Cain and Abel. By almost every way, Cain's situation is exactly like that of his parents. And he chose to do just as his parents did. But there's one very significant difference between Cain's situation and his parents. When Adam and Eve were tempted... That was prompted by Satan. But for Cain, the snake never makes an appearance. Did you notice that? In fact, there's nobody external tempting him. Because unlike Adam and Eve, for Cain, the temptation is always right there with him. The ability to sin is coming from within. Adam and Eve, God created them to be perfect. They had no natural impulse to reject God. The only way they could have sinned is if some third party came, tempted them, and they listened. And as we know, they did listen. And so when they listened, it was like the snake bit them. Sin poisoned them. And not just them, it poisoned them to such an extent that they now have this natural bent towards sin so that Satan doesn't need to keep cropping up for them. But not just for them. It impacts all of their descendants as well. It corrupted Cain to such a deep level that now he doesn't need Satan to crop up. Satan never whispers in his ear. all of Adam and Eve's children now inherit this natural bent towards sin from their first parents. And this thing that's been inherited, some people have called that original sin, what we've originated from, uh, inherited from our original parents, it infects Cain, but Abel as well. Even though we don't see him sin here, Cain is the model of what affects all of us that bent is confirmed by Cain and affects all of the other descendants. And so as we went through the rest of the chapter, we don't necessarily see the details of all of their lives, but we know that this same bent affects them. And we see it confirmed when Lamech in verse 23 and 24 gets a little bit more time. He takes the place of God where God pronounced judgment on anyone who who was to kill Cain. Lamech Takes the place of God and says, Anyone who kills me isn't just going to be avenged seven times, they'll be avenged 77 times. He's, He's ignoring God. Cain stands as an example for all of them. He, in some sense, I don't know how, but in some sense, was still in God's presence so that he was kicked out of it even more. But still, he followed his natural bent. He still sinned. And I think this is one of the most helpful things we see about this historical account of Cain and Abel here. Because you and I are all descendants of Adam and Eve as well. We are just like Cain. We have this natural inner bent which drives us towards sin and like Cain, we choose to follow that bent. Now, we're not comfortable with the idea that we have this That we naturally go towards sin. We like thinking of ourselves as generally good people who maybe make the occasional mistake. But if you really think about our experience, we all know that that isn't true. Our usual process is we think something's wrong, but then for some reason we start to see it as appealing. We let ourselves do it, even just a little bit, and then we can eventually explain away why it's not that bad. Or even in that situation, might have been good. As Adam and Eve's descendants, we have this incredible ability to move the moral goalposts of where we're aiming. You might be able to even convince the people around you that you don't have this. You might be able to convince yourself that you don't follow this natural bent towards sin and that's not what you've done time and time again. But you can't trick God. Cain tried. But God knows us. He knows who we really are. And since we're like Cain, we deserve to face God's judgment as well. And this is the case for all of us. Cain is just the example. And so, not just in Genesis, but as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we see... Satan doesn't need to crop up and have this one-on-one conversation with anyone again like he did for Adam and Eve. Cain sets the new standard. We have this thing within ourselves which drives us there. There is not one person we see throughout the whole Old Testament who has this conversation with Satan, even though he's active. Except for, finally, we get to one person who does have this conversation with Satan who Satan has to come in and tempt, Jesus. Jesus is the only person to be tempted like Adam and Eve were. Now, because Jesus is like us, in that he's human, he can be tempted. But because God decided to bring Jesus into the world in a unique way through his mother Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit... Jesus doesn't share our natural bent towards sin. So when we see in Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 4, Jesus is tempted, but he's tempted by Satan, not by his own internal desires. He isn't tempted like Cain was and we are. But thankfully, unlike Adam, who couldn't stand when Satan tempted him, Jesus the second Adam, he stands. He stands firm. He is the only one that means to ever do that. Where Adam and Eve failed to love God, Cain failed to love his neighbour, Jesus never failed. Even to the point of his death, Jesus was killed and his blood was poured out. Remember how God said that Abel's blood cried out to him from the ground? Well, Jesus' blood cries out to God too. Abel's blood cried out for retribution. But the author of Hebrews, the book that Rachel read uh, for us today, uh, that we're reading in our continuous Bible reading, tells us in chapter 12, verse 24, that Jesus' blood cries out a better word than the blood of Abel where Abel's blood cried out for retribution, Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. When Jesus was killed on the cross, his blood cried out for mercy for those of us who have walked in the footsteps of Cain. And so now, where to walk in the footsteps of Abel? Because remember, Abel was infected by the same bent towards sin as we are. But the author of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 4, commends Abel for his faith, for his trust. And that because of that, he was commended as righteous, as blameless before God. And I think there we get part of our answer about why God looked favourably on Abel's offering and not Cain's. Abel's offering was better not because what he brought was better, because he brought it in faith, trusting in God and his goodness. For us, for those of us like Cain, we can't walk exactly as Jesus did because we've followed our sin. But we can walk in the footsteps of Abel. We can trust, either begin trusting for the first time or keep trusting in the power of Jesus' blood so that we don't have to face the same curse that our, de- that our sin secures for us. Now, I want, I want you to be challenged right now. I want to challenge you. Look at your life. Examine it. Brothers and sisters, if you already trust in Jesus' blood, be careful. Be careful about sin. Sin is not a minor thing. Now, even though we know that sin can't be minor because it meant that Jesus had to die for us, ironically, we can think, well, Jesus has died for us, so sin doesn't matter that much anymore. And we think it's not something that we need to spend effort fighting. It is not okay to dabble with sin. It isn't harmless. If there's something you know is not loving God or those around you, then it's not good for you because its desire is to have you. Whether it's pride in inflating yourself above others, whether by gossip or just in your mind, whether it's letting yourself see other people's lives and envying what God in his wisdom has decided to give them and not you, whether it's looking at others and feeding a lust that doesn't love them, or in filling our minds and time with every other voice but God's. If you dabble in it, it wants to rule you. And thankfully, we don't have to fight this fight against sin ourselves. If you trust in Jesus, we now have the Spirit, which means that although sin will still be with us until Jesus returns, we don't have to follow that natural bent towards sin every time. God, by His Spirit, is actively helping us to kill that sin, to choose not to go towards it, but to love instead. It will be uncomfortable to not always listen to that, to not always listen to our desires. But even though it will be uncomfortable, its desire is to have you. It will be far better to rule over it. And friends, if you've realized that you're following after Cain, that you have a bent towards doing what you know isn't right, and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus' blood, can I please encourage you, do that today. Don't leave today without thinking about this further. Chat to myself, chat to Peter or to Ben or to someone else who you've seen this morning. Even though you have ignored God and let sin rule you, God is offering to forgive you. Let's all trust in the blood of Jesus, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I'm going to pray that God would help us to do that.